Okay, this is uh, Dr. Steve Hodges' podcast, and this is the podcast number five, I believe. And we have uh, Dr. Shauna Regan, the uh, one who started all of this uh, area um, w- way back when. I'm uh, so happy to have you with us, Dr. Regan. Thanks for taking my call. Very welcome. So I have gone way down this rabbit hole now. You know, I'm still that you created and there's always new questions and new challenges. It's never as simple as you think. But even the most basic component, you know, that rectal dilation can lead to bladder function changes is still not widely accepted amongst most physicians. And I want to understand how something that even in 2018 it seems to be non accepted by everyone you were able to deduce in the early 80s. It, there there obviously was data about this even then, correct? Oh, the, 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 when we went back in the literature many years ago, Dr. Yazbek and I, I found a, a paper in the Journal of Medicine in Paris in, I think it was 1896, discussing the role of urinary tract infection and constipation. I was lucky to have the McGill Medical Library, which is one of the best in the world, I think. So it, it goes way back. I mean, it's not just in the modern age of the 60s or 70s. It goes back that far. And how did you make the... So you read this, you know, we, to, to catch up people that may not have read the book. You, you had a son that was uh, had nocturnal enuresis and bedwetting, and you were looking for ways to resolve this. And... Yeah. and he was a he was a five year old horribly enuretic kid. I mean, it was really it, it was sad at times uh, finding him on the floor at night shivering in Montreal, wet all over. And uh, he was a cranky kid who always complained of belly aches. And so uh, <laughs> my wife demanded that I do something about it. And uh, so with a friend of mine, Salim Yazik, a pediatric surgeon, uh, I went looking at the literature and trying to find out was there an association, and there was. And it was evident in the literature at that time, but all was ignored, I guess, because uh, as I learned many, many times from general pediatricians, it's distasteful. I mean, no matter what you say, it's distasteful. It wasn't distasteful to Salim Yazbek, who was a great uh, the pediatric surgeon who was doing rectal manometry at the time, and... Uh, another friend of mine who is a pediatric urologist who was doing systematics so we all shared an outpatient clinic and got going that way and said oh my god this is consistent and it was measurable in other words it wasn't an opinion we did rectal manometry and systematics and all these kids who are enuretic as well as have urinary tract infections which goes along with it in girls especially and uh, there it was our biggest problem of course always was uh, in defining this, every time we decided to do a, uh, a controlled study to show that treatment of constipation ameliorated or got rid of the enuresis, we came up against the, the, the institutional review board who said, oh, you're going to get 50 kids with constipation in each group. The math would work out fine, but you cannot not treat a kid with constipation as a control. It would be unethical. So, as you know, we ended up publishing these big series of kids, but we could never use a control group because of the Institutional Review Board. 
Oh, that's interesting. You know what? What? What's interesting to me though is that so you had the insight to look at the bowels, whereas most people when they see a shivering child covered in urine, they say, well, they're making too much pee at night or they sleep too deeply. How did you pass over those common foibles? Well, you, you know, in medicine, when we don't know, we, I think we make excuses. And the idea that a kid who goes into a physiologic coma called, called sleep suddenly has uh, the urge to wet the bed because some deep uh, uh, hidden feelings or whatever uh, are a behavioral disorder, it doesn't make sense. It's an excuse. Yeah, or that, you know, some things that I, I throw around that make sense to me and maybe to you, but no one else seems to care, is that no other mammals that I know of have this problem. And that even in our urology literature, when I looked, if you evaluate a fetus, a newborn, not a fetus, a newborn infant, um, they will arouse when they void, and then they will go back to sleep. It's not it's not physiologically normal to void while in deep sleep. Yeah, or, or with any other sort of stimulus. You take the baby's nappy off, you want to get a urine sample, and um, they'll wake up, they'll pee, and they'll go right back to sleep. But um, people, well, I think it's the old story. It's very distasteful. I really believe that, in, even for pediatricians, they don't want to have to wait and sit down. Most of them don't. And... Um, it's easier just to fob it off because it has no dire consequences in the long run in general. Exactly, yes. It's kind of pushed away, and then you have a subset of kids that are told to watch it, and then it's 10, 15 years down the road, and nothing's better. Yeah, well, it can fade away. Yeah. You know, because uh, as you know, it requires a, an intensive program by the parents, and everybody's got to join in to solve this problem for a kid and a family. Uh, in other words, there's no uh, on-off business, and uh, that takes effort. And uh, if you're going to put in that, if a pediatrician is going to put in that effort with a kid, with a family, it's a lot of time, and it's distasteful. It is the education alone. I feel sometimes um, I regret not having more ability and more time to do more teaching because you know it's uh, it's not easy process, and we're asking a lot of the parents to do it and. Um, I know you had a clinic that was set up to do this, and even mine is not really set up like that yet, and I need to work on that. Um, well, one of the reasons we set up the clinic was that once the word went out among the pediatricians in the, in the city in Montreal, they just poured the kids in because they then didn't have to deal with it. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the one edge we have. No one else wants to deal with it, that's for sure. A couple of the stumbling blocks I'm running into, other than the, just the disbelief, right, that people seem to be much more willing to believe um, in other causes. That and the internet is full of uh, of red herrings and false false uh, uh, explanations for this. Is that some kids? I'm seeing such chronically impacted children that it's it's very difficult to get them empty, right? It's not something that maybe your first few kids or my first few kids we could do, you know, an enema every night. Um, and they would get empty. Some um, are taking uh, significant variations in enemas or time with enemas just to get uh, a, a blockage resolved or, or their fecal impaction resolved. And then that's step one is resolve the impaction. Step two is to restore normal tone. And uh, I don't know if you even back then 
when you were active if you saw a variation in the response to the enemas in terms of how empty they were getting? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 was, it was a real struggle. I mean, we realized that as time went by. But uh, Salem, who was doing all the you know, rectal manometry, uh, and, um, uh, uh, eventually we didn't do it on all kids, just the difficult ones. And we would find out that, you know, a kid that you thought was empty and wasn't responding wasn't emptied at all. But Salem used to make the point that, I guess, it's like a, a, a cut nerve. It's a motility problem. It's like a broken leg. If you've got a massively dilated rectum that hasn't moved in literally years, really, it's going to take an awful lot of time to get it back. And we had nothing at those times to induce motility, if you know what I mean, beyond the mechanical stimulus. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you, you were so lucky to have that group there. That was like an interesting moment in time. It was very uh, serendipitous to have that group together because if you didn't have the right group together, it may not have worked out. And then um, what will happen with me is that I'll send a child for an anal rectal manometry and they will see that the child okay number one the, the rectum cannot the rectum cannot squeeze so then the how is the child going to defecate they're going to end up valsalving and then they'll see some sphincter contraction and they'll say well this child has pelvic floor dysinertia they need biofeedback and so they'll i'm not saying biofeedback cannot be you know useful but i think it's overdiagnosed as the cause because the rectum is de defunctionalized is that your experience uh, basically yes Basically, yes. I mean, that, that, that about summarizes it, really. But um, it, it's, you know, it's still a chore. And um, the, the problem as well that we had years ago is once the word went out, uh, the kids that we started getting referred to were older and older, which <laughs> were more, more and more difficult to, uh, to uh, control and to, to, to treat because it took longer. Like you said, we found out after a while that... Um, the older kids especially uh, were more dilated than, uh, and uh, more, you might say, lack more motility than uh, the younger kids. That's actually a great way to put it. Like this, like you said that Yazbek said, like a broken leg. It's something that's not been used in years. That's the, right. The pathways to the brain are probably not even developed. And all of a sudden, we're expecting it to restore. And, you know, so I've, I've, I've touched base with a lot of... Um, uh, basically colleagues of Yazbek in terms of general surgeons dealing with this now and there are cases well, I have not referred anyone for this yet but there are cases where they will do you know, a resection of the bowel you know just to taper it because it's so far gone there's no there's no helping it well it's interesting when we were doing this you may have noticed the paper that Salem and I published when we were looking at this and we finally said well, because he was a you know he had a reputation in pediatric uh, abdominal surgery that uh, what happens with Hirschsprung's disease. So we went through all the charts in the in Upper Los Angeles, which is a huge institution, and we were able to show that, well, retroactively, that they did have uh, urinary tract infections. And then over the years, as the Salem did, he used to do more, more or less all the Hirschsprungs in Quebec, which had a Casperteri of 8 million, so it was a lot. We would find out, and he showed us, that uh, when he do do uh, Hirschsprungs, uh, almost inevitably, uh, the kids would get urinary tract infections in the months post-surgery because they were so dilated. And uh, it, it took, obviously, time for Hirschsprung's dilatation, you know, uh, before the anastomosis to uh, to really work again. So you used to have all these kids on very, very, uh, 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 very 
soft diets and enemas to to, to get them going again and he used also as one of the great things about Hirschsprung is nobody talks about the problems after it rather than the problems before it when these kids are treated so it just highlighted again exactly what a dilated gut uh, can result in you know yeah you know we, we're spending so much time talking about uh, incontinence that you bring up the other good point is that this is significantly associated with UTI, um, especially in girls, and also uh, urinary reflux, which you've proven and still not accepted in the urology community, which I, I, it boggles my mind why that is. And so I can almost – your paper where you showed that when you've cured the bedwetting girls, their UTI stopped at the same time, I see every day. And I almost tell um, parents that I use those as markers. I can t- I tell you, so when you stop having one, you're going to stop having the other. And it, it happens uh, with uh, quite a significant reliability. Yeah, well, it's really, it, it, it was so obvious to us, well, over a period of years, it was just a reflex. We ended up having huge clinics uh, because of the referral rate, simply because um, it took the, the, the phone calls and the, the, the visits away from the pediatricians uh, as you know, as time went by when kids would have difficulty in responding. Because um, it, it takes a lot for uh, parents to accept that they have to give a kid an enema. The, one of the first things we always noticed, especially my own son, was uh, once we started the enemas and their belly aches stopped and they felt better, there was no trouble. You know, it was almost universal. They wouldn't, they wouldn't complain anymore. Oh yeah, they 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 realize that they're feeling better because again, the withholding behavior started because they were trying to avoid pain, and then you start seeing that you're having pain, and the enemas resolve it. Then human nature is going to be to gravitate towards feeling better, and I I see the same thing. Uh, I, I may have told you, but it was really funny that with my kid, who was a who was a voracious reader at the time, that when we first started this. Uh, he read a book on his hands and knees at times. He read Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Become famous in our house. Oh, that's a, what a what a good pun. That's hilarious. That, that was that was honestly that was the book that he was reading at the time. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, and he would he, he after about the first week after he told me that he always thought that belly aches all day every day were normal and he had none anymore. He, he would be he would be the one waiting to get cleaned out because he didn't want to go back to having belly aches all over again and getting wet at night. I mean, I mean, imagine how many, you know, we still have emergency room visits all the time for children that are primarily caused by constipation, so it's it's, it's still an epidemic, unfortunately. Um, when I talk to, you know, and this might be above the head of most listeners, but, you know, when the urologists talk about all these problems, they look at the pelvic floor first, they make up some strange dysenergic behavior, and then they explain the bowel and the bladder. You had an interesting um, viewpoint, which I think is the accurate one, which is, Mitch makes the most sense. Children have painful bowel movements or want to delay it. They, they delay defecation. Then the rectum dilates. It loses function. And then you get a re- reflex pelvic floor tightening um, that then resolves on its own when, once you fix the rectum. Is that still um, what you saw and consistent with what you wrote? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the thing about it is that the that what we were doing in those days, we, we you know, because it was the dawn of the world, we were doing systemetrics and rectaminometry uh, almost on the same day in kids. And we were able to repeat and watch over months what happened. 
the, 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 the first time was always difficult. The second and third time, the kids didn't mind because they felt so much better. But when you see a symmetric, uh, systematic abnormal with dyssynergic bladder contractions and uh, with the, the, with the, the corresponding, uh, you know, the Schuster balloon metro, uh, uh, rectal manometry, you say, you know, these two are going together and they're resolved together once you uh, resolve the probably the, 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 the primary problem, which is the rectal dilatation. Kids, kids don't get cramps. Kids don't suddenly have to not soil themselves anymore, and so they're not closing their, they're not getting dyssynergic bladder contractions, suddenly closing their urethra at the same time in a desperate attempt not to, uh, to produce, well, in the girls, not to produce a Gordon sign. In other words, not to, why do they sit on their heels, if you know what I mean? Yes. And, you know, um, it, it was obvious. The only thing we could never do is do a controlled study to definitively show because the institutional review, that drove us nuts for years. And you never, you did this all without, uh, you know, pelvic floor physical therapy. I don't think that even existed back then, correct? A big burden? You did that all. So nowadays those kids aren't even treated with enemas. You know, most people send them to a physical therapist just to work on doing like the opposite of Kegels, like to relax their pelvic floor. I don't think that field of study even existed in the 80s. Did that exist? No, no, no it didn't. Yeah. So you were able to fix them without that? Oh, yes. I, I mean, because, you, 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 you know, it's like with any condition. You, you, have to, you have to solve the primary problem before the secondary problem is resolved. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You, you know, another problem I see, and this makes sense, is that I think the response of the bladder to the colon, you probably saw this as well, but... Again, I want to remind everyone, you, you were a nephrologist. You, you were doing this all kind of 